Welcome to the Doctoral Mentoring Masterclass for faculty sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services. I'm Lee Stallander, the Associate Director of Faculty Research Training at Walden. I hope you enjoy the Masterclass. Alrighty. Once again, this is Lita Downs from the Office of Teaching and Learning Excellence, and I am hosting today's webinar for my colleague, Dr. Lee Statlander in ORDS. I would like to welcome you to Walden University's fifth doctoral mentoring masterclass for faculty mentor and um, faculty who mentor professional doctoral projects. The masterclasses are designed to allow faculty who have been identified as exceptional mentors to share their experiences and insights with the mentoring community. Today's session will be establishing a practice-based problem. The purpose of this class is to have professional doctoral mentors discuss how they help students establish a practice-based problem for their study. The goal of, for this session is to provide a list of usable strategies for mentors to understand the basics of mentoring. So without any further ado, I'm going to turn things over to our moderator, Dr. Lee Statlander. Welcome. Thank you, Lita. You do such a great job. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Let's introduce our panel members of Exceptional Mentors. Barbara, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. Good day. My name is Barbara Benoliel. I'm senior core faculty in the School of Human Services, and I teach both in the PhD and in the professional doctoral program. I'm also a graduate of the PhD program in Human Services at Walden, but that's ancient history. I didn't know that. that. <laughs> Mark? I'm also, I am also a graduate of Walden in the year 99, and um, I'm Dr. Mark Gordon. I work with uh, doctoral students, and PhD, and professional doctorate in the School of Public Policy and Administration. Um, and I've been doing that for 21 years. Wow, you're old. I know, right? <laughs> I have, I actually, I did a little uh, query and found out I have 60 uh, published dissertations or capstones oh, wow. in the database. So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Very cool. Well, think yeah, of it as fun. you're just very experienced. <laughs> so yeah, I came to Walden when I was 10 years old. So. Yes. <laughs> so can you guys tell us about how your professional doctorate program is structured as far as the project goes? I mean, are all students doing a similar project? What's that about? So the Professional Doctorate in Human Services is actually one of Walden's more recent degrees, added degrees. And when we looked at this program, we wanted to really provide the student, the graduates, an opportunity to take their learning back to the field and be able to actually have a, a profession that they could sell in the field. So the project was divided into two specialization areas, both of them very much focused on field practice. One of the specializations is leadership and program evaluation. And in human services, it's really common for most services to be offered through programs. So that made a lot of sense. And the second specialization was for students who just wanted to have more expertise in their field work. So that one focuses on prevention, intervention, and advocacy. So students actually are streamed into two areas. 
but they learn similar strategies as they're going along, both for their study research and for their practice areas. I don't know if that helps. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I didn't know that. Um, in our program, we have one um, capstone experience, and uh, it's primarily, well, it is focused on public administration, broadly defined. So we have students um, working on projects in any public organization, department, agency, perhaps a nonprofit organization. And we really encourage them to think of putting a professional um, consultancy cap on. That's their approach to the project. So can you differentiate for me, what's the difference between a dissertation and a practice-based problem? I mean, Mark, do you want to start with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll take yeah. this off. Um, they are, there, there's a misperception perhaps with some of our students that one's easier than the other, and that's just not the case. They're just different. Um, and they're different in that the PhD is really there to um, add to the knowledge, to fill a research gap, um, to uh, use theory, uh, perhaps more, um, more importantly, to use theory um, and to add to the body of knowledge, to add to theory. And the practice base is really there to fill a gap in practice. And those are really the broad distinctions between the two. And I have examples later. We can uh, talk about that. Okay. Barbara, anything else you want to fill yeah. it's, it's the same idea in that when students are looking for a, a problem, we'll be sending them for the PhD, for the dissertation, to look in the literature and find a gap in the literature in where the knowledge is found. Whereas if students are looking for a the practice degree, we're going to send them into the field and look in the field and look what's happening around them and look at different sources, read the news, see what's happening in your community, uh, find out what organizations are doing, what are their goals, what are their missions, what are their objectives right now, and find those gaps, those areas to focus their studies on. So it sounds like I think a student could make the case that their practice problem is actually social change. That is that, is there a difference in how you define those two things? Yeah, for me, it's, you know, think global, but act local. So we're asking students, you may have a social problem. And many of our students come passionate, already committed yeah. to some issue in their life. But they are thinking globally when they come. They think, I want to change um, child welfare, I want to change poverty, I want to change hunger. And then we're going to ask them on a practice base, look closer to home, look around you, see what's happening in the local, in your area, in an organization or a community near you, and find out what problem are they dealing with specifically related to this grand issue. So for sure, social change becomes very local in the, in the, yeah professional doctrine, because you're going to be solving a problem that you can identify right in your own area of interest and in your own area of practice. Yeah, and to pick up on that idea, um, we require students to work with organizations. So 
again, they often come with um, a passion about, let's say, um, homelessness. Um, and they sometimes they need a little help to get um, to be thinking about if I can help an organization that helps alleviate homelessness. Um, that's where we want the student to go. So there's the social change problem, which is not exactly the research problem. So we, um, again, we really want students to identify a real world problem that an organization is having. And perhaps that organization in this example is helping alleviate homelessness. You know, we often see in dissertations that when they're going to be doing a project, students want to go into it already thinking they know the answer. Is that something that you guys see with the <laughs> professional doc? You're laughing. It must be. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you, you having an educated, interested researcher is important, right? And, and I think that's, that's fine. But asking them to really check their bias and not assume they understand what the organizational need is, is really important. So we um, encourage students to identify an organization early and actually talk to the, a leader in that organization about a very real problem so it's meaningful. I also find for us, when the PhD student is coming to us, we're sharing with them that their end goal is going to be providing new information that may inform some solution to problems, may inform those you know who are decision makers. And in the practice space, I think we're focusing more on actually finding a solution to an existing problem that's been already identified so that they may actually have much more influence on the solution in the professional doctorate than they would have on the PhD because of the kind of project that they're doing in their research and the kind of research that they're actually doing. And we see a big difference in the actual research component of the study between the dissertation and the professional capstone. Hmm. Are students allowed to do a project in their own employment area? I mean, so like if they're in a hospital or something, could they do it there? Yes, and again, this might be different in, you know, for some PhD students because of the nature of their work, it's not you know, recommended that they would pick their own workplace. But now, especially with new IRB guidelines, students can very well do some research using either archival data from their own organization or anonymous data that they collect where they don't have direct connection necessarily with you know, you know, co-workers or employees. Or, and, right, and many yeah. times it'll work out quite well. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, I would be a little careful about the direct supervisor doing the research when you know interviewing their direct reports that that yeah. not going to work but yeah i agree um, i had a student who was on the city council and was helping um, the fire department determine where to put a new firehouse mm -hmm. it was really interesting hmm. so how does it work as far as like theories or frameworks for a professional doctorate, I mean, do they do have, let me rephrase that, do they have a framework or theory? How does that work? 
Yeah, I'll just, I'll go ahead and start us off. Yeah. Um, I immediately, um, I work, I tend to work with students that have um, nonprofit in mind or international NGOs, non-governmental organizations. And there are um, sort of a strategic planning is just sort of a, a easy one. Lots of students end up doing something related to strategic planning or resource development planning. And their theoretical framework might be uh, models of strategic planning or stakeholder theory. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, again, a practical, very applicable, um, practice-based theoretical lens. And I know in our program, we really designed this program so that every course the student takes is actually moving them toward their capstone. So by the time they get to capstone, they have both the research skills, the theoretical skills, the, the framework skills, everything is sort of geared. So one of our research programs is force field analysis, which is a way to analyze both the you know, good and bad things that are helping make change in an organization. Well, while they're learning that research method, they're also learning the theory behind it, which is Lewin's change theory as an example. So frequently, students will find they have the theories already there if they want to conduct this kind of study. When again, we're looking for more practical and more applied theory versus theoretical uh, frameworks that may be larger or geared toward bigger ideas. We're looking at things that will help model the kind of change that they're trying to identify. So let's get back to that practice-based problem idea. How is that decided? I mean, it seems like you've got three people or three entities here. You've got the student, the chair or committee, and then the organization. How much interaction is there between those three? Well, I'll go ahead and again, I'll start this one off. I, uh, when I matched with a student, one of the very first conversations in addition to how are we gonna work well together is have you identified an organization? Hopefully they have, but they could have gone through their doc seminar classes or residency um, without one. So that's step number one is to see if they're working with an organization. And then secondly, did they actually talk to someone about a real problem in the organization? So I think that's the most important thing um, is that the student um, can identify um, a real practical problem that the organization is having. And then I'll support the student to do that project rather than steer them away to something else. So do you talk to the organization? I do not typically, but I have. Yeah. How do you know that? Sorry, I'm, Barbara, I will get to you, I promise. No. Um, but how do you know that the student oh. actually did talk to the organization? Sure, yeah. We require... Uh, uh, at the prospectus stage, an organization agreement that oh. lays out what the student will deliver and what um, the organization can expect the student to need as far as time, resources, access, 
Mm-hmm. So that's in an organization agreement and that is signed by the organization. And I'll typically um, do a web base, a web search on it, and do a quick little mm-hmm. check. Barbara, how's it different? Well, you? for us, we don't require students to actually uh, identify an organization. Mm-hmm. They can identify a community or a group of practitioners who have a common interest in uh, an issue. So for example, uh, a group of practitioners who have an an interest in a state mandate about uh, treatment for uh, substance abuse and the problems that arise from that mandate or the law, the restriction on access to service. So what I will do, and this is something I sort of enjoy and recommend for faculty, is I actually interview the student and find out what is the issue that they're really focused on? What do they think the problem is and how they identified it? Do they have any evidence yet that they can help for them to identify and focus on what is the problem? That's even before they start to write the prospectus. They're out identifying and really narrowing and focusing their problem with some evidence, whether it's a report from the organization or a state report or some statistics that are published that identify that this is an issue that this community or this group or this organization is dealing with. That really helps the student to focus and narrow because the students come usually with a broader idea of what they want to cover. You know, I remember going into my own dissertation that I want to cover the world and really needed help from faculty to narrow and focus that down to a doable project that can be done in a capstone. So that initial interview is really helpful. And, for the students too to know where they have to find the information. Yeah, and sometimes you can marry a student's interest with an organization's need. So if I have an interest in um, board governance, I will ask, or I would, if I were a student, ask the executive director of that agency or organization, what board needs do you, in a that typically will start in huge conversation about all the needs that they need for the board of directors, roles, responsibilities, and so on. So. So they we, again, we really want to, we want to help the student um, complete a project that they care about, that they're passionate about, that they want to, um, that benefits them in their career, as mm-hmm. well as help the organization. So it's just sort of marrying the, the different, um, not competing, but the different um, needs. So are they typically working with an individual, like the executive director, or is it a An organization, yes, yeah. I, I like the student to have a contact person. Oftentimes, again, they know th- these people are perhaps work in their profession. They know them well. Sometimes they don't, but having that point, that contact, I think is important. Um, And for us, it's frequently actually associations that help students identify other individuals who may be uh, included or may be the opportunity for their organization. So we do a lot of networking. And that's actually one of the skills that's part of the program, because the idea is after you finish this program, you're going to need that network to find a permanent position that you can use these skills or to start your consulting career if that's what you're going to do with these professional skills. It's a very skill-based approach, I think, Lee, 
much more mm -hmm. so than the PhD, which you know obviously has research skills, but there's additional skills in this professional doctorate, like consulting, like drafting reports that are not for academic purposes, but for other stakeholder consumption. I love that idea. I think, of course, like that would be great for PhD ones too, mm -hmm. just to think about those aspects, you know, what you're going to be doing with this degree. Uh, I had a question and it is gone. Um, not sure. So, yeah, go ahead. I think it might be, I, I have a, I wrote down an example in oh, my um, field that might be interesting that maybe we can talk about some different examples of projects. Um, in a municipal government department, there's a significant lack of transparency and accountability in budget allocation and expenditure, leading to inefficiencies in potential management or mismanagement of public funds. The student is tasked with developing and implementing a comprehensive financial transparency and accountability framework to address this issue and improve the department's financial management practices. So that would be a really great um, problem, practical, um, that a student can work on with an organization. Um, uh, we often get into um, management of finite resources in public administration that is underlies pretty much everything. <laughs> so that's a really great example. Um, a few other examples, if you don't mind, I'll keep sharing. I had a student. You. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah, go ahead. Um, go ahead. So I would assume that, I mean, financial information is going to be proprietary. Uh, How do they... I mean, do you have problems with organizations? Like I might share it with you, but I don't want you to publish it. Yeah. Is there a problem with that? Well, yeah, names are not shared of organizations or their fictitious names and any proprietary information like that um, would be pulled out. We wouldn't publish that. Um, often students do um, um, data analysis, trend analysis, financial reviews of things, of uh, historical reviews. Um, we also have agreements. Uh, I mean, it's, it's part of the students' ethical responsibility to protect participants and their identities. So we would never identi identify an organization or a specific individual or group if they are part of the project. Uh, what we would do in publication is to mask that identity. But if we are providing feedback to those participants, they would get, and, you know, obviously they know the organization, they're part of it, or they would be related to it. And they would get, you know, the information for their own consumption in, in that version. But the other thing that we do is we actually ask our students to plan as part of their project to be able to prepare a white paper because if we're saying you are here to help with social change, the way that we believe is the best for them to sort of disseminate the results of their findings is to write it up in a version that is available for a non-academic to read. 
and with information that would help in informing them what change is needed or has been recommended. And that would go back to stakeholders. And the student identifies those stakeholders, whether it's policymakers, decision makers, organizational leadership, wherever that white paper is going, that would be identified and it would be appropriate to that group. Yeah, and, and in our program, it would not be a white paper, perhaps it's a PowerPoint presentation to the leadership team, um, an executive report or summary, perhaps it's a summary with a list of recommendations for next steps. Does it ever happen that the student finds out something bad about the organization? I mean, maybe someone's stealing things or whatever. I mean, it seems like that could be possible when you start talking about financial stuff. I've not had that experience. No, I, yeah. Well, we talk a lot, Lee, about the, uh, the you know, the theory of unintended consequences. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's actually, you know, what can happen in the middle of, of a capstone is things change. And, you know, unexpected changes in the organization or in the community, and which can actually throw somebody's study way off. Or that sometimes they find something that they weren't looking for. That that can also be part of it. And then the decision has to be made, what do you do with that? So um, we're not there to be detectives. We're not there to catch anybody doing anything. That's certainly not the goal. <laughs> right. But or, as you or, know, yeah, or, yeah. I, I did have one student who went to interview employees um, about a policy and found out they had no idea that there was a policy. <laughs> so that was interesting. I'm not that's sure. a great finding. Really... That's a really valuable yeah. finding that exactly, they had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I know even like with PhD research, you know, we always, I always talk to my students that you may find out something negative. Like you're talking to an elderly person and you discover that there's elder abuse in some way. Um, but you need to mm -hmm. think through that, uh, what you're going to do with that information that you get. Sometimes if it's anonymous, it's not a big deal, but if you're doing an interview, well, then it leads to all kinds of consequences that you have to take care of. So I can see it happening with you guys. <laughs> so, so one of the one of the sort of casual tests I have when listening with student to students um, about their project is, um, by the way, we call ours a professional administrative study. Mm -hmm. Is to to see if they have clarity about what they're quote doing. And it usually is the deliverable to the organization, um, the purpose um, to select a stakeholder management software to help solve employee turnover. Um, perhaps it's to help inform a strategic or resource development plan. Um, maybe it's to do an outcomes assessment. Um, I had one student who, um, didn't have an organization and went from her passion for homelessness to having an amazing study within a year. And it dealt with um, helping determine success for a new pro pilot project um, that was a safe parking program in a community in California. 
and it was relatively new, which opens like all kinds of avenues for research. And the executive, uh, the director of that program said that she has all these stakeholders that have different views of, of success for this organization. So we applied stakeholder theory and lo and behold, the police department had one view of success. The city council had a different one. So it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and that took conversation, um, multiple conversations with the, the uh, director of that program. Um, and uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, another really interesting one was a placement for a new firehouse, um, which is quite complicated. You have lots of competing resources, geography. Um, um, you have to understand where people live, where the needs are. Um, the, this particular project included uh, some bridges that were quite congested. So it was really interesting about what um, the final recommendations were. And he presented to the city council and the fire department and really interesting. Lee, you had mentioned before the issue about doing uh, research in your own organization. And of course, you know, we're saying, yes, that is possible, but I'm also really aware that the, the bias that goes with that when you are really enmeshed in the issue because you're working in it every day can sometimes really be a challenge for the student to be able to differentiate what they want, what they really want to happen versus being that independent investigator who's trying to find the answer to the problem versus forcing their own. So the, the bias issue in, in human services, you know, every issue is a social services issue. And it has to do with being dependent upon resources and the community and law and policy and procedures. So it's, it's always complex and much more focused on lived problems, the problems people encounter in their everyday lives in dealing with regulations, rules, policies, procedures, laws, things that govern all access to social services in your community. So the range of projects is quite large, which I think is really exciting that students can really find within that realm something that they're focusing on. But the risk is I'm so focused on it that I can't see the forest for the trees. And that's yeah. really part of the challenge for the students. Yeah, and I, I think that the students' interest in their profession um, can be a great avenue I mean, they, they're educated um, researchers, which is really important. Perhaps they, you know, to an outsider, the recommendation is to go out and hand out money. Well, that's not possible, right? If you if you know the world that, that the organization lives in and the policies and public uh, administration uh, requirements that they live under. Um, but if I, you know, just thinking to my... I, I came from uh, the resource development nonprofit world before Walden and actually as a consultant since. And I have very strong feelings about what ought to be done and roles, responsibilities. And, um, and I have to, you know, I would have to check that because that might not be uh, one size fits all for all organizations. 
So it's really important for any researcher to be uh, objective and to really let the data speak for itself. And I love it when students find things that they don't expect. I mean, mm -hmm. that's beautiful. <laughs> and hopefully they're carrying away from the program these specific skills in doing these kinds of field studies that are really marketable skills, whether it's program evaluation or conducting focus groups or conducting action research projects or you know, doing an analysis of barriers and, and strengths of a program or of a, a change that an organization is trying to make. And these are really marketable skills. So students walking away with something that they can take to the field with a demonstration, because the capstone is really a demonstration. Like, this is what I can do. I'll show you from start to finish. Here's a project I started, I finish it. It's great addition and you add that to your resume, you put that and that's like a great endorsement of not only can I tell you about my skills, I can show you what I can do. Mm -hmm. Really valuable tools. Do we have any questions from our audience members? I don't want to just keep talking. If anybody has any particular thing, oh, we do have one. From Morris. Um, you both mentioned that you're Walden graduates. Just curious, is this influenced in any way the way you mentor your students? <laughs> Mark, you've been around longer. You go. <laughs> I remember uh, my my chair of a I, I my degree is actually in applied management and decision sciences. So again, it's an applied degree. Interestingly, um, my feedback on my proposal, um, Dr. James Bowman years ago, he was two words, and it was cut twenty five percent. And you know, getting to know Jim. I understand the feedback now, but I, I, it taught me that students need more <laughs> than that. They need support. They need encouragement. Often it's not academic. Often it's being a cheerleader um, uh, or, or just listening to a student um, and uh, building the trust in that relationship. Doing it early on is so important. It, it saves time, money, and headache, unnecessary headache later. Uh, well, yeah, Morris, to answer your question, for sure it influenced me because I wanted to stick around for more. I wanted to do more. But <laughs> also, I have to tell you, when I see students coming in today and the resources that they're getting now that we never had in the days that we were, I'm so jealous. I wish I could start yeah. it now oh and do it now. Yeah, there were no checklists. There were no, no editors, there was no, no mind style. No, 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 no so, template. <laughs> but it certainly has made me very aware of the experience of being an online student trying to integrate all the information on your own at a distance. And I, you know, I realized faculty were wonderful then, they're wonderful now. So I know that that's a strength of the program, but it's still a challenge when you're trying to learn it all on your own. And uh, I appreciate that every day when I speak to a student that, you know, I'm that feeling, I know where you've been, I've been there too. So, and I know where you're going because yeah. you're going to be taking my place one day, that sort of thing. Yeah, it can, can be quite lonely out there for students who, yeah. who whose spouses uh, workplace, they don't really understand what 
you're up to what you're doing. <laughs> so have, having that perspective as I, I actually was a student here. So I have a, a bit of a interesting perspective, clarity about it. Um, but yeah, Barbara, we have great resources. Um, if a student, I, I tell my students, if you feel stuck, let me know because chances are I can help or I can certainly send you to someone that can. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I would like to just add is to include the second committee member, um, her, copy them on emails. I often do that when I, at specific important points, perhaps I've been working one-on-one -on -one with a student. When I return uh, their final, what I believe is a pretty good solid draft, I'll let the second committee know, member know FYI only give them a heads up um, or did you want to see this now or um, how early into the process do you, would you like to look at drafts sort of establish those guidelines or understandings early is, is helpful. And, and I agree with Mark. I, I love sort of like the idea of no surprises because yeah. <laughs> nobody likes surprises. So working together, it's really a team sport. We work together right from the beginning. We take a look at what the goal is together with the second committee member and we keep them informed all the way along including their input and their their recommendations and their requests for revisions all along the way so the student's not surprised faculty's not surprised and we reach the the end goal together very good does the second committee member ever get involved in like the practice problem idea i mean do they help shape that or yeah, frequently they have, uh, I've had, you know, second committee members who are much more expert in a specific area of practice when they find out what the student's doing, they have tremendous resources to offer the student to help them in forming that problem, or might even have contacts with organizations or uh, associations that are really valuable. So that's why the earlier that you find out, you know, the, the, the more valuable it is. Yeah, I think that's probably, it's important to have this conversation with when you're matched with a student early on to find out what their interests are and um, and who the second committee member is so you can help sort of manage the process. Some, sometimes the second committee member is very involved, other times not as much. It just depends on the project um, and what the student needs. So really being an active listener is important, I think, with on any committee. Right. The other thing I find is really important for students when finding their problem is also to make sure that you have a problem that where they can actually have some access to data that will help them. Because as I've found a few times where the student has real, really good idea, really good problem, really good access to the organization, but the data is not available so that it's not possible for them to do the project there they have to go somewhere else so that combination with the problem and the data together is my my magic combo that makes it happen without those two there's no you can't go anywhere so early on not only to identify who you want to study or with whom you want to do the study but also what do they have to offer in terms of data that might be valuable for you to use right yeah, and so if, an, if a student's meeting with a director of an agency, let's say, 
but the director of the agency doesn't want to avail their employees for interviews, let's say, well, then that's really not going to work. It's just a recipe for um, time and time is money. And so mm -hmm. you really have that. to be willing. Do you feel like a professional doctorate is a faster project than a PhD? I mean, often if we have a student that is going to be doing a dissertation project and they're going to do, do it with an organization, we suggest they start talking to them early, but with the idea that you may not actually do the project for a year, it just to open the yeah. door. Is it faster? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's less credits. It is faster. There's no residency for our program at all. No mm -hmm. residency at all. So it definitely does cut time because, you know, the planning of that residency and you know, sometimes people are waiting a quarter just to finish a residency. So there's definitely an opportunity to complete a professional doctorate in a more timely manner than a PhD. Just I even the number of courses. Yeah. In our program at this moment, we have students that attend virtual residencies, but we've built into the curriculum now uh, doc seminars that are essentially replacing residencies for new students. Mm -hmm. So, but I tell you what will drive the time out of the equation is having an organization early on really mm -hmm. important. And, and so all of the students' efforts can, they can have a clear prospectus ready to go. Um, and then from that moment on, it's building out the proposal, actually conducting the research. It can be fast. I mean, I had, again, I had a student go from not having, um, she just had a passion to having a really great completed project in one year. Um, she was a busy nurse mm -hmm. and uh, found the time to do this and did a really great job with it. We have one more question. Let's see if we can get it in. Barbara mentioned PhD and professional doctoral students differ in the development of the research component. How's that so? Could you elaborate on that? What yeah, sure. Wow, it's a long question. What research designs are employed, for example, and do they differ from PhD dissertations? Uh, yes, they actually, in our program, they're very different. So in uh, the the professional doctorate program, the students do not go through the regular research course sequence at all. They have a course in statistics and basic statistics called uh, uh, evidence, data as evidence. They have a course specifically in program evaluation and advanced program evaluation. They have a course in force field analysis and they have a course in action research. And we really try to help encourage students to use those research methods and those modalities to conduct their research, both in quantitative and in qualitative formats, so that the students are really looking for applied research skills that they can use in the field, both for the capstone, but also after capstone as marketable skills. So they would not take the, the usual 81, 10, 80, or 80, 10, none of the quant and qual research courses are part of their program. And that's why we try and steer them into those research methods 
for their capstone study. So I have a number of students who are doing action research projects with various communities and students who are doing force field analysis on you know, barriers to advancement or change in different organizations. And they're very specific in using the skill that they learned in the course and applying it because the course is actually preparing them for capstone and helping them find a problem's purpose and, and really detailing all of that as part of the coursework. So that when they come to the capstone, they've got an idea of how it works. We're not trying to teach them the research method in the capstone. I hope that helps answer it. I almost Whereas, to a yeah. person, yeah. my student's methodology is uh, qualitative in nature. They may do some quantitative historical um, organization data analysis, but they're not testing hypotheses. Very good. Uh, definitely in dissertation, obviously we're using the same quant and qual methods that you see in terms of generic qual and phenomenology and case study and all the variations. And in, in the quant side, we see a lot of um, you know, uh, analysis of variance and regression and logistic regressions and things that are sort of related to the kind of data that human services looks at. And I think we're about out of time, you guys. Well, I just, I just want to say how interesting the projects are that I, it's just fascinating. Yeah. Oftentimes I know a little something about it, but I always learn from my students on these mm -hmm. projects. I think it's, it's wonderful just as a as a um, professor i think it's really interesting to to learn from my students awesome well a couple reminders that we are putting together an online doctoral mentoring guidebook if you have additional ideas or tips that you use i'd love to hear them and there's my email address and November is going to be a little bit different than previous months in that we have two sessions of the master class just because we had a hard time scheduling things with holidays and stuff. So the next one is actually going to be Tuesday, November the 16th at 11 a.m. Eastern. And we're going to continue this discussion with some different panelists to get different sides of it. Um, the differences between practice gap and literature gap. So hope you can join us. I want to thank our panelists. You guys were wonderful as always. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, for being our masters of ceremonies. You are very welcome. <laughs> Thanks all. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Lita. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services. Our music was by Excel Music Publishing, licensed under Creative Commons.